In the darkest moments of life, hope comes in many forms. For the Smurls, it was Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were an older couple who, at the time of this tale, claimed to have investigated over 10,000 cases. Ed was the director and founder of the New England Society for Psychic Research, and Lorraine, a powerful psychic medium. Who better to come to their rescue? And to the Smurl family's relief, they believed. Trigger Warning for Sexual Assault This is part two of the Smurl family haunting, Living with the Devil. I'm your host, Douglas Lawrence, and this is Dark Humanity. were an older couple in their 60s when they knocked at Jack and Janet's front door. Ed was a World War II veteran who had been interested in the paranormal since he was a child, growing up living with a poltergeist, who at random moments would throw objects across the room. He had seen firsthand what the unknown could do to a family. Lorraine was born with a gift she would sometimes call a curse. She could see through the veil between worlds. At first, she saw auras around people's heads, she described as a kaleidoscope of light. For the kind, it was soft and beautiful. For the cold and greedy, it was dark and shadowy. After she reached puberty, her sight grew formidable and frightening. She met Ed when she was 16, and as she looked at a boy, she saw a gray-haired old man and instantly she knew they would spend their lives together. The two had spent their lifetime as roaming artists, and when they came across someone who needed their help, they did all they could do. After countless investigations into the paranormal, they learned ways to combat demons and malevolent spirits of all sorts. They were well prepared to answer the Smurls' call. After several phone calls, the Warrens agreed to make the four-hour trip from Connecticut to visit the Smurls in person. With them, they brought a second woman named Diane that also had an unusually strong psychic gift. After a cup of coffee and the normal round of questions, Lorraine and Diane excused themselves to start investigating the house. On the stairs, Diane felt something strong lingering nearby. Lorraine nodded. She sensed it as well. Diane said she was scared. Lorraine said she was too. After their investigation, the two psychics told the family there were four entities living with them. One was a harmless, confused old woman who had probably lived and died in the house. The second was a young woman who Lorraine said was violent and most likely clinically insane. She explained that she could most likely be dealt with through prayer. The third was a man who had a mustache. Even with their combined ability, they were not able to learn who or what he was. They did say that they believed the spirit could be capable of causing harm. The last was a demon. Lorraine explained it was an entity that had never walked the earth in human form. Told the Smurls the demon had probably been in the house dormant for decades, and when their daughters reached puberty, it gave the demon a special kind of energy it needed to awaken. They were told the demon's goal was to keep them confused and afraid. 
If left on check, it would destroy their family. He explained that the demon was feeding off their life force, using them like a battery. That's why they all had been so tired and sick. Ed and Lorraine confirmed the couple's worst fear. They were in a fight for their life. After dinner, they all went to Jack and Janet's bedroom, where Diane, the Warren's assistant, set up a 35mm video recorder in the corner where she had the best view of the room. Ed turned on his tape recorder. Now pray, he said to the rest of the group sitting on the bed. They recited, Our Father Who Are in Heaven, and a recording of Ava Marie played. Ed would later explain it was sung beautifully by a nun. The song was played a second time, and that's when two large mirrors mounted to the dresser started to shake violently. It sounded like there was a small animal trapped in a dresser drawer trying to claw its way out. The small television in the room had been kept unplugged since the living room TV caught fire. The screen started to glow with a pale white light, casting an eerie light over the small group seated on the bed. With holy water in hand, Ed started to demand that the demon be gone. Slowly, the sound of the dresser settled down and the strange white light faded. The Smurls could feel a change in their home, like a heaviness in the air lifted just a bit. But the Warren said that it was just the beginning. They had a long road ahead. They suggested contacting the church to request an exorcism. Later that night, after the family retired to bed, the demon answered the Warren's challenge. Out of nowhere, Janet felt a heavy hand slap her hard on the thigh. Then again, harder this time, she was sure it would leave a bruise. Jack had turned to ask what was happening when he felt the air around him start to stir. He felt thousands of little legs crawling over his flesh. He looked down at his chest expecting to see thousands of spiders. So as Janet was attacked, Jack danced on the bed wildly flailing his arms. The whole time, a pounding inside the wall shook the house. Over and over, some unseen entity slammed its fist against the inside of the wall. It continued until 3 a.m. There would be no sleep for anyone that night. Strangely, after the Warrens became involved, the Catholic Church became less interested in helping the Smurls. They were able to buy crosses and candles, but Janet commented that they acted too busy to speak with them, and when pressed, they did reluctantly bless her purchases, but did not use holy water and walked away as soon as they were done. And to see two women standing together in his bedroom late at night. One was old and the other much younger, her hair an odd color that was not really a color at all. Both women were dressed in long dresses with bonnets covering their head. They whispered to one another and occasionally looked back at him. The young woman smiled and Jack didn't know why but it made his blood run cold with fear. Day after day things only grew worse. The Warrens remained in constant contact calling Janet every morning. Soon they had no choice but to send in a hand-picked team of researchers to analyze every detail of the haunting. Their names were Jason, a legal secretary from Connecticut, and Ricky, a demonologist from Huntington. He was a full-time member of the Warren's research team. Jason could sense psychic energies and could feel the presence of the darkness from the edge of the Smurls' property. Jason set the tone of the investigation right up front. 
He gathered the whole Smurl family in the living room. He told them he was starting the investigation under the assumption they were lying. They would have to prove it to be true. His words outraged the Smurls, young and old. After patiently listening to their protest, he explained, as a professional psychic researcher, if they were in his place, how would they handle it? What kind of research would it be if I just accepted people's stories as fact? Your research would not be worth the wasted paper it was written on. The Smurls shuffled their feet but slowly came to understand. While Jason talked with the family, Ricky went through the house setting up a tape recorder in the hallway. Jason started the team's investigation by having the Smurls recount all that had happened in order, and he asked questions trying to pry out as much detail as possible. Ricky recorded every detail the family shared in a heavy notebook. It was as he was making notes that he heard the first heavy bang from upstairs. After an hour, they were sure they were in the presence of a demonic entity. The two men spent the entire night in the house logging activity. They said by morning they had worn out their pens. After breakfast, they were sure they had the evidence they needed to report back to the Warrens in Connecticut. Many investigators would be involved in the investigations at the Smurl home. Many I will not mention. Lauren made her way up the stairs alone after being greeted by Jack and Janet. She walked the hall and felt a pull from one of the girls' bedrooms. Once inside, she could sense a presence. Lauren later explained that her silent observation was disturbed by the sound of claws scratching at the window pane. She turned towards the high-pitched noise and found herself face to face with the demon. She said it was a hideous creature with dark, cavernous eyes. Its clawed hand still reaching for her, the only thing separating the two of them was a thin pane of glass. During their conversation this time, Lauren explained how a demon could use his psychic powers to attack their mind, making people see things that weren't real. She also told them that ghosts were only people who refused to accept their death. Most ghosts won't harm people, but demons have the power to weaponize a spirit, using it as a tool to destroy a person's resistance to the demon's dark desires. After they had a nice dinner out, Ed told them he wanted to perform the rite of spiritual provocation. He explained it was going to be complex and dangerous. The goal of the rite was to force the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to reveal itself. Once the demon was present and visible, Ed believed he could banish the demonic entity. Lawrence entered the master bedroom ready for battle, confident from their years of training. They were sure their faith would ensure they would be victorious. Ed could feel the presence of the demon, even though he had never had any connection to the psychic world. The room was unnaturally cold. He only had time to glance around before an unseen attacker grabbed him by the throat to strangle the life from him. Ed grabbed at the unseen, his hands only finding air. He fell from his feet. All he could do was pray. He grew dizzy on the verge of unconsciousness when he felt the grip on his throat loosen. Ed staggered as he made his way to one of the girls' tidy bedrooms. He had his heavy cross in hand. He found strength in the cross as he caught his breath. He steadied himself and began the rite by making a large sign of the cross. He felt the temperature in the room drop. By the time Ed commanded that the demon leave the house, the temperature had dropped 30 degrees. 
Ed shook from the cold as he recited the ancient rite of provocation. He saw threads of light dancing over its silver surface. Darted the form, one after the next, until the full message was clear. You filthy bastard, get out of this house. Temperature in the room continued the drop. He felt his muscles begin to cramp. He could feel the demonic force paralyzing him. With all his strength, he raised his cross and demanded, in the name of Jesus Christ, to leave this house. A fresh wave of freezing cold hit him, but Ed held strong. Again, in the name of Christ, he commanded the demon. Slowly, Ed felt the entity's grip begin to fade. Like the rising sun driving away the shadows of night, the words and the putrid smell faded. He could feel the warmth re-enter his body. Ed still shook as he looked down at his cross. He had won the battle, but it was far from over. The Warrens waged war with the demon well into the summer. On June 21st, the demonic monster launched a massive counterattack. The house had been quiet, and things actually seemed to be getting better. The family had watched a movie together, and shortly after the girls went to bed, the couple followed. Jack was sound asleep when he came full awake all at once, dazed and confused, but with one emotion overpowering the confusion. Terror. Jack watched as a paper-white old woman rose from the floor next to the bed. She was covered in scales like a snake. Large sores weeping pus covered her with her face and firm body. Her hair was white and thin in a tangle on top of her head. She opened her mouth showing her jagged teeth. She licked at her lips with a long dark green tongue. Jack knew what she wanted. He tried to jump from the bed, not caring if he trampled over his wife Janet in the process. His muscles refused to obey his mind's commands. The creature had control of his body. He could only lay there on his back and watch the creature's red eyes study his every feature. She climbed onto his helpless body and began to thrust herself against him. She rode him steadily until she reached climax and began to moan and thrust herself even more violently her glowing eyes wild with pleasure. Then, she was finally satisfied. She smiled down at him and faded back into the darkness. Only then did Jack regain control of his body. He reached down to find that he was covered in a sticky substance that smelled of rotted bait. Even the lightest touch was incredibly painful, but he had no choice but to get in the shower and scrub himself to get the gelatinous ooze off his body. Jack found his wife on the living room couch. She later said that the bedroom had gotten so hot and stuffy, she had to find another place to sleep. The next morning, one of the Smurl's daughters told their parents that she had had a nightmare where she witnessed an old hag raping her father. She was so disturbed by the dream, it outweighed her embarrassment of the subject. That morning, Janet called the church looking for help. Her call ended in vain. Janet had grown up Catholic. She knew the church was structured like a bureaucracy. So with the help of the phone book, she found the number for the diocese in charge of the churches in that part of the state. She called and after a brief hold was connected to a Father Calloway. He was a kind man with a robust voice. He calmly listened as Janet described what had been happening in their home and the local church's reluctance to get involved. 
the priest offered to call the chancellor and discuss the matter with him personally. The man told Janet he was going to make her case, and he was sure the man would be receptive. She was instructed to call him again in the morning. Janet did not dare to hope. When Jack returned home from work, Janet excitedly shared the news. Jack called an old friend of the family, who had family in the diocese office. The man Jack had known nearly his entire life said that he had never heard of a Father Calway. He said he wanted to make a call to ensure that things were on the level. Twenty minutes later, the phone rang. Jack's heart hit the floor as a man told him that there had never been a Father Calloway at the diocese office. Jack's friend gave him the name of Father Doyle, who was in the Scran office. Jack was told he was a good man worth the call. The next day, Janet called as she was instructed, but this time she asked to speak to Father Doyle. Father Doyle confirmed that there was no Father Calloway. Once Janet started to talk of their family's ordeal, the priest's voice became tight and guarded. The father said he would take it under consideration and reach out to her the next day. But in her eyes, she had lost faith in the church. The demon had won its first major battle. The next day, Janet's mind never left the telephone, but it was no surprise to her when the call never came. Other than the Warrens, who seemed to only make the problem worse, the Smurl family was on its own. The Warrens told them that demons are neither male or female, but when one attacks a man sexually, it's called an incubus, and if it attacks a woman, it's called a succubus. They contacted an exorcist named Robert F. McKenna of Monroe, Connecticut. The Warrens called him a traditionalist, which meant he was a former monk who had broken away from the church when the Vatican Council ordered that people could practice their faith as they wished, and Mass was to be performed in English rather than Latin. He was completely independent and worked outside the constraints and control of the Pope. Even though the priest had no formal training as an exorcist, and a true exorcism could only be performed with the approval of the Pope himself, he was all the Smurls had. An exorcism required the whole family be clean of spirit and completely devoted to the Word of God. As the Warrens prepared the family for the rite, they warned that the demon knew what was happening and was sure to fight back. The night before the exorcism, Jack found himself frozen in bed. The same two women stood in his room as they had months ago. Only this time, a strange man was talking with them in a hushed tone. After a long moment, the man walked over, his footfalls making no sound. He thrust his finger in Jack's face. You will pay for this, he said very angrily. He returned to the woman, and again they talked in hushed voices. They remained for another full five minutes before they faded away. The next morning, the Warren sent the research team ahead, and the two of them would follow later in their own van. As they drove, Ed was hit by what he called the flu and quickly became very ill. Lorraine gave the credit for the illness to the demonic, saying it was a powerful psychic attack. They had no choice but to turn back. It would be several days before Ed was able to get out of bed again. At two o'clock that afternoon, Father McKenna pulled in the driveway. He had performed the rite of exorcism 50 times prior to the Smurls, with 20 successes to his credit. 
He unlearned to battle the devil through trial and error, placing his very soul at stake each time. To prepare for the priest's arrival, the team had placed a small table in the center of the living room. The priest unloaded a small black doctor's bag of tools he would need. The table transformed into an altar as a man worked. The Smurl family and the Warren's research team waited for instructions from the priest. After the altar was complete, he told them it was time to pray and that they had to pray harder than they ever had before in their life. They were told to pray for their salvation and for the demon to be cast out. The rite of exorcism consists of the priest saying ancient words begging God to drive the demon from the house. After completing the rite, he asked that Jack and Janet walk with him as he blessed each room on both sides of the duplex. He would also bless the attic and the basement and the back and front yard. As he blessed Jack and Janet's bedroom, the couple feared the evil would light the house on fire. Once all the spaces in the house and property had been blessed, the small group rejoined the rest at the altar. Father McKenna began saying Mass. As Janet and Jack knelt at the makeshift altar, the sound of a young child at the top of the stairs throwing a tantrum drowned out the sound of the Mass. In the kitchen, the cabinet doors started to bang. All around the room, furniture and vases alike started to vibrate, some crashing to the floor. Father McKenna just said mask even louder, and the Smurls squeezed each other's hands as they prayed for their life. All at once, the clamor stopped. The childlike tantrum ceased. As God love flooded in, the smell of roses filled the house. After the rite, the priests blessed a pail of water just in case they needed it. They were told not to talk about the evil. Doing so only gave it power. For the first night in recent memory, the Smurls could rest. The Warrens stayed in touch, and to everyone's dismay, the demon was not done with the family. Just a few days after the exorcism, the demon made his presence known, and his attack was stronger than ever. One of the twins, Karen, became gravely ill. Janet reported to the Warrens that she had lost seven pounds in less than 36 hours. Karen was hospitalized for days before her fever broke. In all, she spent a week receiving around-the-clock care at the local hospital. The cause of her mysterious illness remained unknown. Only a few days later, a succubus attacked their 16-year-old daughter while she was in the shower. She managed to escape before the demon fully materialized. That would not be the last time the Smurl women would have to flee the bathroom. After the demon's brazen attack on the teenager, the Warrens sent their team and shifts to help as they investigated the activity. The Smurls tried to escape the torment by going camping, but they found the demon just followed them, making their lives hell. The torment grew so frequent that at times, when it started to happen, the family would just roll their eyes. It did many things to the Smurls. It scared Mary so bad she had a heart attack. It lifted Shannon out of bed and threw her into a wall. It even followed Jack to his office, making every part of his life miserable. One day, while Janet laid on the couch suffering a migraine, she felt a soft touch on her thigh. The demon threatened to molest her, but when her reaction was more annoyed than afraid, the demon grabbed her throat. 
The grip of the creature was like iron, and Janet could not even cry out for help. Their large German shepherd tried to defend her, leaping and snarling at the invisible attacker, but nothing was going to save her this time. She felt her life slipping away. She gave in to the soft embrace of death. She remembered what the Warrens had told her about Jesus' white light of protection. With the last of her strength, she prayed. The demon's grip was broken. Janet was sure she was moments away from death. The Warrens, not willing to back down, arranged a second exorcism. The second visit from Father McKenna was pleasant and unremarkable. There were no strange smells or sounds, not a single bum. The Warrens were hopeful, but Father McKenna was not. He just felt again the right had failed. The house was quiet for two days. The whole family had hoped that the nightmare might at last be over. That's when the pounding started. Things continued to worsen. Beds being lifted and shaken became a regular occurrence, as well as things materializing, mostly in the bathroom. They were never allowed to rest, not a single night. Demon was completely out of control. They explained the four stages of demonic possession. Infestation was the haunted house. Footsteps, knocking, and odors were great examples. Oppression would consist of physical attacks, depression, and severe illnesses. Obsession. The demonic force became the center of the person's life. And at last, possession. The demon was able to periodically take over a person's body for a short time. The Warrens believed the demon was moving into the last phase, being possession, and Jack was their obvious target. The Warrens had a plan to gather a group of priests and go to the Smurls' house in force, and with their combined efforts, drive out the demon. But the Catholic Church was not interested in discussing their plans, or communicating with the Warrens in any form. The Smurls asked the Warrens to take their story public. They called a Philadelphia talk show called People Are Talking. Ed arranged for the Smurls to accompany him and Lorraine as guests on the show. The show, which first aired in 1978 and did mostly lifestyle and exercise pieces, treated the Smurls well. The Smurls' identity would be protected by a silk screen and their last name would not be revealed. While on the way to the TV station, Jack was kicked hard in the back several times through the seat of the car. Janet ended the attack with holy water she carried with her day and night in a small aspirin bottle. The Smurls assumed the demon didn't want them telling their story. Even in their motel room, the demon refused to let the couple sleep. It pounded on the mattress so violently that the two of them were forced to sit in chairs watching the creature go berserk. When morning came, they were completely exhausted. That was only the first of many of the Smurl and Warren appearances on talk shows, where they retold their story, growing the nation's interest in their dilemma on as many as 15 television appearances. Shortly after the interview, Janet was asleep next to her husband. She woke to find herself standing over the bed. Her body was levitating across the room until she gently bounced off the wall. Her body twisted against her will and she was flung across the room, this time with an inhuman amount of force. 
Again, she found herself being manipulated and hurled hard across a small bedroom, where she crashed against the wall, unable to protect herself. She then explained that she found herself semi-unconscious. She could see everything in the room, but it was distant and shadowy. She felt she was in a place between life and death. When her senses returned, she found herself back in bed. She was badly bruised and void of strength. If they were not being attacked, the phone would ring all night long, always ringing in blasts of three. The demon was determined to sap what little strength that remained in the battered family. Then one night, Jack was in the hall late at night. He saw what could easily be described as a minotaur. There standing before him was a beast with a man's body, legs and hips of a horse, and a pig's snout and clawed hands. The creature charged him, driving him back into his bedroom. He said the creature's hoops pounded the floor through the thin carpet. Jack climbed into bed, backing himself against the wall. His only protection was a tattered prayer book. The creature ran across the bed. Jack could feel the creature's immense weight on the mattress. Jack said the creature was different. It had mass and was very real. The creature charged at him until he vanished through the wall. The Smurls were pushed past their breaking point. Jack was ready to tear the house to the ground and try to find a new life somewhere else. They considered going public, with both their real names and faces completely at the mercy of public scrutiny. Ed talked Jack out of destroying their home, saying the beast would only follow them wherever the family went. There would be no escape for the Smurls, but Jack was on the brink of disaster. Janet, too, was well past her breaking point. One day, she lingered in bed well into the late morning. She explained that a human hand reached out of the mattress, grabbing her by the back of the neck. Janet had lost her will to fight. She told the demon to just get it over with. If her death was what the demon wanted, he could have her. Janet had lost her will to fight. She told the demon to just get it over with. If her death was what the demon wanted, he could have her. She only asked that it just leave her family alone. The demon did not accept her as a sacrifice. It was determined to have all six of them. With the constant attacks on the whole family, Jack decided that they would contact the church one last time. If they did not help, they would go to the press to apply force. Janet called the diocese, and they only said they would help. They did not disclose what the help would be, but Janet assumed they would send a priest. They did not. After Jack was violated a second time by a succubus, the family finally found the courage to reach out to a reporter at the Wilkes-Barre Sunday Independent. Even though the article was intended to ask for help and put pressure on the local clergy, it grabbed the media's attention from coast to coast. People flocked to the Smurls home, hoping to catch a glimpse of something to satisfy their morbid curiosity. The crowd was a mix of all walks of life. Some came out of concern for the family, and some just to raise hell and party. After several weeks of the media circus, the Syracuse Diocese finally contacted the Smurls, saying that they were not pleased about the media coverage, and that they should have contacted the diocese first. Father Doyle explained that they were receiving an overwhelming amount of calls from reporters asking about the family. 
A few days later, an unnamed priest reached out to the Smurls and they told him their story once again. Again, they were told that he would contact them in a few days. While they waited, a priest from another diocese offered to perform an exorcism. Only then, the Scranton Diocese reached out to say that the offer extended by the traveling priest would be against protocol, and they had requested for him to report to them. The church refused to help and seemed to wield its power to stop any outside effort. At long last, Jack and Janet were invited to meet with the officials at the Scranton Diocese office. There, they met with Father Doyle and the Chancellor himself. The Smurls were anxious to put the diocese in contact with the Warrens. The Chancellor spoke up and said that there would be no need for them to speak with the Warrens. The diocese would be taking over the investigation. After patiently listening to the Smurls' protests about the Warrens' exclusion from the process of driving away the demon, the church said, as far as they were concerned, the Warrens were no longer relevant. The Warrens told Janet that the church was doing their normal routine of deflecting the negative press of how they abandoned the Smurls. The Warrens warned that the church investigators were one-sided. Rather than admitting the haunting, they would often go out of their way to disprove such things. Finally, the church dispatched Monsignor Brown, who would spend the night in the Smurls' home to witness the haunting. The man stayed a full two nights in the Smurls' home and did not witness any supernatural phenomena. Other priests were also dispatched to the home, but no activity ever occurred. The Warren said it was just another trick by the demon. It went out of its way to ensure the Smurls would have to suffer alone. The Warrens again called Father McKenna to perform another exorcism. This time, he said prayers on both sides of the duplex and blessed the entire house, including the backyard, with holy water. Following the exorcism, candlelit vigils were held nightly, as large as 75 people all praying for the family. Family and friends also came to call to share their strength against the demon. Again, the scent of roses filled the Smurls' home. After weeks of peace, the Smurls announced that the family was finally free from the grip of the demonic force that had tormented them for so many years. The diocese said that they had found no evidence of supernatural and therefore could not take a stance on the case. But with the statement's family that the ordeal was over, they would end their investigation. It was not to last. Months later, the demon returned in full force. To this day, the Smurl family remains haunted by the demon. There is always two sides to every story, and sometimes in the middle is where we find the truth. Many in the paranormal community were anxious to investigate the Smurl home, offering additional proof the Smurls could use. The Warrens blocked any outside investigators from having any contact with the Smurls. The most notable was the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. The group was known for its disapproval of the use of psychics and relied solely on the scientific method. The Warrens could not prevent the group from looking into the case through public records. 
The investigation done outside the home by the organization found that the police had no record of any complaints from the address or the family. They also noted that the Smurls were in negotiation with a television studio about a possible film around the time of the news release. There were many inconsistencies in the statements made by both the Warrens and the Smurls. August of 1986, Ed Warren spoke of a recording of grunts and groans captured in the home. He also stated that he had captured video footage of a shadowy figure moving about the Smurls' home. When asked for the tapes after the press conference, he stated that he gave them to a TV station, but he couldn't remember who. When asked again on a later date, he told them that they were turned over to the parish office. The church said no tapes or any evidence had been turned over to them. The Warrens also refused to allow members of the media to stay the night in the home to capture evidence of the haunting that occurred on a nightly basis. The Warrens' reasoning was that the media first ignored the Smurls' pleas for help, so now the media would be ignoring. The Warrens did all they could to block the Smurls from the media, stating that any statement or correspondence would be handled by them at the request of the family. Another inconsistency I found during my research is in the documentation kept by Father Richard McKenna, he only performed two exorcisms at the Smurl residence, not three as is said by the Warrens and the Smurls. The Warrens hired a writer and with their help, the book The Haunted was created with full editorial control held by the Warrens. The couple would also profit from lectures that ex examined the Smurl family haunting, and later, during the movie The Haunted, they were employed as consultants. Even though they claimed not to be paid for their help, they were compensated by the public exposure of the family. Many say the Warrens were con artists who preyed on the mentally ill. In the realms of the paranormal, where so many questions are left unanswered, the evidence is often fuzzy at best. The truth can never be known. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Again, I'm Douglas Lawrence, and this is Dark Humanity.